So good evening again, uh, and welcome again to RUF. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my name is Nick Bratcher, and I am the campus minister here for RUF, and I'm, I'm really glad you joined us this evening. I know uh, that you could do a lot of things with your Tuesday nights, uh, but you're here. Uh, tonight, we're continuing on in our series uh, on the Psalms uh, called Songs That Shape Us. Particularly, we're in Psalm 51 tonight. Uh, that should be pulled up behind me, and it's uh, on the back of your handout as well. Uh, but I'll remind you that we've called this series The Songs That Shape Us because that is what the Psalms are. Uh, they are songs that were meant to be sung by God's people, and as they sing them, God would effectively be shaping their hearts uh, to, uh, would it, well, sorry, God would be effectively giving people words to sing about Him, uh, describing Him, what He is like what they're supposed to think about him and themselves and the world that's around them. But one of the most remarkable parts about the Psalms is how they actually uh, are, are not just supposed to shape how we think about these concepts, but instead uh, they shape our very emotions. Uh, they give voice to how we feel in our everyday lives here, our heartbreaks and successes, failures, desires, everything that we experience here. In other words, the Psalms are really songs for specific occasions. They are uh, songs that are designed to help us feel uh, emotions and experience occasions in a way that honors and glorifies our Creator. Last week we looked at feeling distant from God from Psalm 42, and ultimately we concluded that God draws near to us even when He feels far away because He turned His face away from Jesus on the cross. Tonight's psalm, Psalm 51 is a song for repentance. It's a song for repentance. Now, when I say that word, repentance, some of you may think of like medieval monks like whipping themselves, or you might think of uh, some sort of fire and brimstone preacher that's saying like, repent or perish, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or you may not have heard that word at all. You may have no idea what it means. You're like, repentance, I, that's a foreign word to me. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a document written in 1646 to outline the beliefs of the Church of England when it adopted Presbyterianism, has a really great definition for repentance. It's this, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his own sin, does, uh, oh, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does turn from that sin uh, with grief and misery over it uh, to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new life, and new obedience. But that is a mouthful. Uh, so here's our short operating definition this evening. This is what I want you to think of when I say repentance. Repentance is the action of turning away from your sin to God and His grace. Turning away from sin to God and His grace. Repentance is the action uh, of turning away from your sin to God and His grace. The reality is that we all find ourselves in the position of needing to repent, of needing uh, this, this action of turning away from our sin. I understand that uh, some of us here might not actually think that God gets to determine what is right or wrong. So you are like, I, there's no such thing as sin. Um, but we'll get into this more deeply in a moment. Uh, whether you believe in God or not, uh, and whether or not you believe that maybe you think uh, you can determine for yourself what is right or wrong. We all actually do have these standards, though, right? We all have some understanding for ourselves, some standard that we hold ourselves to. 
And, and the reality is this. You've got to ask yourself this question this evening. How is that standard going for you? How well are you keeping up with that standard? Uh, ever say anything to a friend you wish you could take back or get dumped or rejected despite uh, resolving in yourself that you, you never would? Uh, ever bomb a test and feel the possibility of grad school slipping away from you? Uh, how is this standard keeping that you have set for yourself, how well is that holding up for you? Um, God, for his part, knows this about us. And while he does get to set the standard, he also gives us the beauty of Psalm 51 to help us navigate our failures within it. Uh, tonight's psalm invites us to know the God who has given us these words to sing when we sin. Uh, it gives us a path of repentance, a path forward through our failure to meet the standard, and it gives us a way of turning back to God. So that brings us to our big question for the evening. How are we to repent, right? So I'm saying it's uh, we need to turn away from our sin and to God, but like, what does that look like? Let's put meat on that. Um, we'll skip reading the passage, uh, and we'll just uh, pray and then dive in. Uh, dear God, let the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so uh, let's look at verses 1 through 2 to start. Uh, remember, we're answering this question, how are we to repent? How are we to repent? Well, in verse 1, the psalmist begins by rehearsing the character of God, right? He is merciful, steadfast in his love, abundant in mercy. How does he know these things are true about God, right? Is he just making them up? Does he just hope that they are true? Uh, no, um, they are actually a rehearsal of something that God has actually disclosed about himself, that he said about himself is true when he told his people his name was Yahweh in Exodus 34. This is uh, what he says there. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, his name, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. A lot of those same words show up here, right? The psalmist is uh, simply telling God, back to God, the words that he gave him to describe his character. And the psalmist doesn't just talk about God's character, he also talks about his provision. Look at me at the tail end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. Here the psalmist refers to the ritual baths, right? So when he says uh, washing, he's actually referring to literal washing, literal baths that were carved out uh, in the limestone at the south gate of the temple. And people would, as uh, worshipers, would actually immerse themselves in these baths before they entered God's presence. Uh, the psalmist is recalling ritualistic cleansing. Uh, that God offers to his people to blot out their transgressions, a symbol of that, of that uh, looking away from their sin. Psalmist will return again to this point in verse 7. Look with me there. Um, the psalmist uh, there is talking about purging him with hyssop uh, and being clean. Uh, he's, either, he's alluding to one of two things. He's either alluding to uh, the cleansing of a leper from Leviticus 14. That's when a priest would actually dip this thing called hyssop, which is a... Uh, like a really hairy like plant. Um, they don't have hairs, but you know what I'm talking about? The little like stickly things. It's a really hairy plant. And so it actually like, it would do really well when you bundled it together and you dipped it in something. In this case, you would actually dip it in blood. 
and you would sling it seven times at uh, someone who had developed leprosy. Um, or he is referring to the ritual for, uh, from Numbers 19 for cleansing those people who have come in contact with a dead body. Um, both the uh, actions are the same, that they need to be um, sprayed, you know, with, uh, sprinkled with this hyssop. Um, and in either case, both rituals end the exact same way. The promise ends the same way. It says, uh, he shall be clean. The person who does this, the person who has this happen to them, they shall be clean. Um, and uh, David adopts this idea and says of himself that I shall be clean if, if God proverbially cleanses me with hyssop. Even the writer knows uh, ultimately that these are just rituals, right? That they are pointing, they're signs that point to a larger reality. Look at verses 16 through 17. As good as the Old Testament sacrificial system was, its efficacy is ultimately tied to a deeper reality, an inward reality of what these outward signs represent. Sprinkling water has purifying capabilities, right? Water does purify things. And blood and death do, uh, do on some level um, satisfy sin. But not, the blo- like, not uh, bulls and goats and uh, not just putting water on something, you know, that doesn't actually right a wrong. Uh, the writer of this psalm doesn't know yet how those things are going to come to fruition, what they're pointing to exactly, but he knows that really a deeper reality has to take place than just these things. Um, a, a broken and contrite heart, something deeper uh, must be afoot. He doesn't know that Jesus Christ is going to come that he is going to be the ultimate uh, blood and death sacrifice that is spilled on behalf of his people. And uh, the point is here, even without knowing that, the point that the psalmist is making is this. In his opening statement, he's saying that God ultimately makes a way for having relationship with those who have sinned. That God initiates that, not us. We don't come to God first because we hope he'll be nice, We come to God because he initiates with us in our sin. We see that that in both God's character, right? He's saying God is all these things, steadfast in love, merciful. We see that in who he is, and we also see that in what he does, uh, in his provision. Uh, The basis for for, uh, repentance is apprehension of God's merciful disposition toward us. You can come to God in all of your guilt and with all your sin because God has assured you of his mercy if you do come. Uh, This is actually our first answer to our question, how are we to repent? Um, First answer, with apprehension of God's mercy. With apprehension of God's mercy. Um, The reason this is important is uh, you won't come. If you don't know this about God, uh, repentance will never be a fruit that you bear in your life. The reason that is is uh, whenever I was, uh, I was a really little kid, um, but actually before I was born, I need to go back even further. Before I was born, uh, my parents' first anniversary, my dad gave my mom like a set of crystal swans for their anniversary. I have no idea why that was like a romantic gesture. It was the 80s, so I'm just going to leave it to them, okay? Uh, but this is what my dad gave my mom, and she freaking loved these swans. They were apparently like one of a kind uh, you know, handmade um, by some person that they knew, sort of. And they were, uh, they were expensive, like very, very expensive. So much so that, like, 
the children were not allowed to like look in their direction uh, or for fear of punishment. Uh, one day, you probably can tell where this story is going. One day, uh, my cousins and I were having a romp, uh, a romp of a pillow fight. And someone decided that instead of holding onto a pillow, it makes a much better projectile. Uh, and I decided that instead of getting, hitting, hit, getting hit in the face with a pillow, it would be better to duck. But the problem was that I was standing in front of, you guessed it, the swans. And uh, it did not go well for the swans. Uh, they broke, right? Very fragile pieces of glass. They broke. And I immediately ran out into the yard and hid. I just hid. Right? I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I was a dead man if I stayed where I was. And so I hid. And uh, I remember my uh, parents were, were out of the house at the moment, and they came home. And uh, I remember my mom went in the house, I guess saw the mess that we had made, and then came back out in the yard knowing that I was not somewhere in the house and started yelling for me. Nick, where are you? Nick, where are you? Nick, where are you? Um, and after a little while, uh, started to like sound more panicked. Um, and in that moment, I had a decision to make. Do I, you know, expose myself and tell my mom, like, hey, uh, here I am. Uh, I am now, but I might not be in five minutes when you kill me. Um, or do I say to myself, uh, She's loving and kind, and she'll understand. Uh, the reality is how you think about, the, how, you, how I thought about my mom flavored whether or not I was going to be able to come clean to her about my uh, breaking the swans. Guys, this is us and our sin, right? This is us and our sin, friends. Do you believe that God is ready to receive your vulnerability? Before the psalmist gets anywhere close to what we're supposed to do, uh, what it looks like to start down the road of repentance, uh, you've got to first comprehend who God is and what his disposition is to you. Or else coming is just masochism, right? Um, ex- you know, if my mom was not loving, and she was, right? I, should, I would be wise for me to actually hide. If she was literally going to kill me, I should have not just hid. I should have fled. But I didn't have to, right? I didn't have to because my mom loved me and cared for me. And that's uh, what this psalmist is inviting us to see first and foremost about God, that everything else hinges on this point, that you can trust him to be gracious to you. But it isn't enough just to know that God is merciful, right? It's not just enough to know that, because there are plenty of people who would tell you that God loves you no matter what. Um, Honestly, there's a sign outside of our uh, union right now from a church that will tell you readily that God is proud of you. Right? They don't even know you, and they'll just tell you on a sign that God is proud of you, uh, that he loves you and he's kind. But um, sometimes that actually moves us to sin more, not less. Right? Uh, a false understanding of God's kindness says, oh, he'll love me no matter what, so I can sin all I want, and he's going to keep loving me. This is not the God that's pictured here. Right? This is not the road of repentance as the psalm understands it uh, and as it presents it. Instead, look with me at verse 3. The psalmist says he knows his transgression. Um, when, you, when, you hear, when you see that word knows, you might think that he just kind of like acknowledges it, that he has, uh, he has become aware that he has sinned. Um, that, uh, one, ignores a little bit of the context that this psalm is written in. Um, remember that these are supposed to be able to be sung by anybody, 
But at the very least, uh, this psalm is actually about uh, David's sin with Bathsheba, where he actually um, had sex with another man's wife, then killed the man to cover it up. Um, he's, he's very aware of his sin without, um, without uh, somebody making it plain to him. He's aware of it. But the, the thing that happens is uh, the reason that this psalm has an occasion why he ends up penning this is not because he's aware that he did something wrong, but rather he's become convicted by it, right? My sin is ever before me. Even the heading of the psalm says, when Nathan the prophet had come to him, Nathan, a year later after uh, the sin is committed, actually comes and through a parable gets David to admit, wow, I've really messed up. Um, It ignores the second part of this verse to say that, like, it's just knowing you did something wrong and saying you're sorry. That's not enough. Uh, The reality is uh, it's not enough to just know that you've done something wrong. Contrition and emotional regret are actually part of what it means to uh, repent. Um, They are the proper response to sin. Um, It should not simply be that you unfeelingly apologize for something and you check that box, right? God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't just pull a handle and he, and like repentance, you're clear. You know, that's not how this works. Um, really our hearts, if we see that God is who he said he is in verses 1 and 2, we, our hearts should be broken uh, when we understand the gravity of our sin. And it is grave. There is gravity to it. Um, because the Bible claims that when you sin, uh, you have broken the ultimate standard. You've broken God's law. That he actually gets to decide what is right and wrong and that all violations of that law land us in the guilt of sin. Uh, This is why in verse 4, as soon as he says that he really understands the weight of his sin, he turns on that point and says, actually, so much so do I understand the weight of my sin that against you, against God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Um, Even though this psalm is written in response to the guilt that David has experienced in doing something pretty horrible, right? Uh, sins are sinful uh, not because of the people that they hurt. Those are, uh, those are secondary reasons. Sins are sinful primarily because they are acts of rebellion against God, right? Uh, some, in our culture particularly, we like to think of if you do something wrong, it has to hurt someone. Um, one, we are very, very bad at discerning who gets hurt in very obvious situations, um, our, just take one look at our culture, and we are, we are readily blind throughout our whole history as Americans to suffering and hurting people and just stepping all over them. We, have, we, have, we are very, very, very bad at discerning when people are actually getting hurt by the things that we do. Um, but secondly, um, we, don't have, we don't have the right to do this. We don't have the right to say what is or isn't hurting someone. Um, we can't actually know that because in 100 years we might actually look back and say, um, that was it. That was good for that person, or that was bad for that person. Um, Five hundred years ago, uh, people used to write odes to, um, you know, in Viking culture, people used to write odes about men who would slay whole villages and pillage them um, because it showed strength and valor. Today, we would mostly write odes to people who love well and who are kind and and nice, the opposite values, and yet of your culture and of your time, you're going to think which ones are right. You're not anchored to anything. And so the reality is here that uh, David is making is that when we sin, ultimately it's against God primarily that we sin. 
Um, It's against him. Even as we hurt other people secondarily, uh, primarily we have sinned against God. And the point here is this, that um, if God is the ultimate judge of all sin, um, harming others actually um, is given not less weight, but more weight. That if God is the ultimate judge of everything and you are sinning ultimately against him, then your sin against other people is compounded, not lessened. That uh, doing anything that harms another person, like David has done, or like we do regularly, uh, is given more weight. um, Because we have not just wronged that other person, but we've now sinned against the God of the universe. Part of repentance is acknowledging the offended parties. uh, God, ourselves, and others. Um, uh, This is also what leads the psalmist to his conclusion in verse 5. Right? He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, we need to confess our sin because uh, we ourselves are, are not, uh, not properly built. Uh, something is born wrong with us. Um, what this is not saying, um, historically, the church has thought about this verse in two different ways. Um, that being brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me is that sex itself is a sin. We know that that is not true in scripture. We know that uh, man and woman became one in the garden before the fall ever happened. So there is no sin present in sex. Uh, We also know that um, uh, sex is actually a picture and a mirror of God, uh, God's love in Jesus for the church. Uh, That's in Ephesians 5. Paul tells us that. And so it is not a sin uh, to have sex. What he is saying, however, is that from the moment we are conceived, before we're even born, we are marked by sin. We are marked by a disposition. That is, it's not just that we do wrong things sometimes, it's that the inward bent of our heart is selfish and bent toward doing what we want, what we care about, looking out for number one. So to summarize, besides apprehending God's mercy, repentance requires contrition over our sin, acknowledging the offended parties, primarily God, and admitting our complete need for forgiveness, that we can't fix it, that we're not, uh, we're not on the verge of a breakthrough, we're not one self-help book away from like really getting our lives together, but that we are ultimately and completely devoid of, uh, of ability to actually carry out God's law. And you know what this, this is called in Christian um, lingo is confession, right? What we call this three-part uh, act of acknowledging our sin um, uh, contrition over it and um, admitting our complete and inability to save ourselves. We call this confession. It's our second answer for the, for the evening to the question, how are we to repent? We confess of our sins. That's our second answer tonight. We confess of our sins. So if you're keeping score at home, with apprehension of God's mercy, we confess our sins. That's how we repent so far. So the question becomes, do we just confess our sin to God and that's it? Right? So as long as I, as long as I you know, feel bad or I, I understand that I really have like, hurt, like I really have sinned against God and man and I am sorry, um, is that the end of it? Uh, no, not according to this psalm. Uh, remember I said earlier that it's turning from your sin. We've gotten that part, but to God. Look at me at verses 8 through 12. Uh, the psalmist turns his face from his sin to God at this point. Here he looks to a new life in the wake of his confession. In the wake of his confession, in verse eight, 
Uh, the ESV has translated that like his broken bones are rejoicing. Uh, but the basic meaning of the root verb here uh, for rejoice is actually to shake or to tremble. Uh, another way of translating it is this, let the bones dance that you have broken. Uh, this is no half-hearted look for help. Uh, this, the psalmist wants a fully restored relationship with God, so much so that the very, the very bones uh, that were crying out in displeasure over his sin are now dancing. Uh, someone should text... Oh, sorry. <laughs> this is a hot half note. Never mind. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, in verse 10, I do want to make a note because I want you guys to text me once. Uh, in verse 10, he asked for a new heart, right? Um, in verse 11, he asked for the Holy Spirit to remain in him, working through him to follow God's law and thrive in God's presence. Now I'm at this point. Someone should text me about whether or not you can lose the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't have time to talk about it uh, here, but you should text me. In verse 12, he asked for the joy of the Holy Spirit... Uh, that is a benefit of being justified, adopted, and sanctified by God. Uh, The psalmist is asking for nothing less than a turn from his sin, but also uh, is resolved to look upon the face of God, uh, to pursue his goodness and his love and his mercy. And this is our third answer, uh, third and final answer for the evening, the question, how are we to repent? Uh, We turn from sin to God, right? So to put it all together, we, with apprehension of God's mercy, we confess our sins and turn from sin to God. Um, you'll notice that this turn from sin uh, to God entails a few things, right? In verse 13, there's a then there uh, that implies that if he does this, something happens, that a different life uh, occurs. If he makes uh, this about face and pursues God, some things will need to be true of him, um, particularly that God will have to make a new heart in him. Right? How does someone get a new heart? Uh, at the time uh, when this is penned, right, we now know of heart transplants, but this is impossible in his day, right, for you to actually get a new heart, a new disposition towards things. Um, but God is granting it to him. Right? One of the assumed consequences of this restored relationship is that um, he is actually so on fire for God that he is actually so... Uh, enamored and and enraptured in God's love, that he actually begins teaching other sinners his ways. He begins teaching other sinners about God in verse 13, and he's declaring God's praise in verse 15. The idea is uh, that in the wake of this repentance, in the wake of, of knowing how God has forgiven him, how God has loved him, the singer of this psalm's heart can't help but move outward towards others. Right? It's been said by a few pastors that grace goes somewhere. When he gets grace, he wants to pour it out, effuse it to other people, declaring God's love and goodness to them that he's been declared to himself. Uh, what this looks like um, is, is something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Reflection on the Psalms. Uh, he writes this about uh, praise, about telling other people, about, um, about enjoying God. He says this, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment or like approval or giving honor. I'd never noticed that all the enjoyment uh, of praise is actually spontaneous. It it is an overflowing action unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought to check it in. The world rings with praise. 
lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be the inner health of good people. Um, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. They say things like this, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Uh, Repentance ought to be unto life. Abundant life that is so overflowing that it actually causes us to introduce God's grace to other people. Uh, the point is not uh, of repentance is actually not to beat ourselves up or to have some sort of like experience of God, um, but rather um, it, it allows us to know a deeper sense of God's presence, His grace, His mercy in such a way that we actually can pass that on to others. This is why repentance is essential to the Christian life. Um, this is why Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and he says, one of them knows me and one of them doesn't. It's because a Pharisee who thinks he does everything right lacks repentance. He lacks the knowledge of God as a merciful, gracious God. And so he can't tell people about who he really is. Instead, uh, the tax collector who who bows his head and tears his clothes because he is not able to even look up to God in heaven. Um, He knows who God is because he trusts that God is gracious. Um, The only way to do uh, this, the only way to do the Christian life is through repentance. It includes the pains of confession, right? It includes things that are hard for us to look at about ourselves. But it ends in the glories of right relationship with God and praise toward him that overflows into blessings toward others. And this ought to be an encouragement in our efforts to evangelize your friends. I know evangelism can be like a really scary word, um, and it might actually intimidate you to think about talking to like your non-Christian friends about God. But uh, the, uh, the heart of evangelism is really a repentant heart. Right? The heart of evangelism is a heart that's shaped and marked by someone who has been so deeply forgiven by Christ that they want other people to know that goodness themselves. I'll say this in closing. Uh, approaching this God, um, if you're still on the fence about whether or not uh, this is the God for you, I'll say this. He is so much better. This God of repentance is so much better than approaching the other gods we're tempted to worship. Uh, they will not be gracious to you when you fa- fail to meet their standards. Uh, Your need to be successful won't show you mercy. Uh, For a question missed on an exam, people-pleasing won't let you off the hook when you have that big blow-up with your friend. These gods will actually 
push you into wallowing in your shortcomings instead of grace. Um, These gods bid us to heap shame upon ourselves. Not so with the God of the Bible. He is a parent calling out for you while you are hiding. Will you come to him? Will you be loved by him? Will you sing his praises? Let's pray. Lord,